0: Welcome
1: to the New Books Network.
3: So you want to learn Texas Two-Step. We're gonna cover all the versions and give you a way that you can dance confidently anywhere in the country. So, the basic is quick, quick, slow, slow. I'm starting with my left foot, Megan's starting with her right foot. The basic version you're gonna see is kind of a shuffle for a quick, quick, walk, slow, slow. Or side together, walk, walk, side together, walk, walk. That is one of the versions you're gonna see depending upon which honky-tonk you're dancing in.
1: A sincere thank you to dancers Ryan B. and Miss Megan, but I don't think you're ready to teach the version of the Texas two-step we'll be talking about today. From Cited Media, this is Darts and Letters, sitting in for Gordon Kadic, I'm Mark Apollonio. Buckle up, because it's an altogether different kind of honky-tonk.
3: are sharing their secrets about Johnson's Baby Powder. You don't say.
0: Johnson's will keep me cool and dry. Try a little.
4: Is that right? Johnson's will make me feel silky soft.
3: Let's smooth some on.
1: No kidding. The Johnson's I'll smell fresh? Let's see that.
3: Johnson's Baby Powder from Johnson & Johnson.
1: It'll keep you comfortable. Take it from a baby the infants in that 1980s Johnson & Johnson baby powder ad, they're trying really hard in their infant way to tell their parents something. The parents, they think they're trying to say something about how soft and dry J&J's powder is, but maybe the kid had something more important to say. Something like, mom and dad, this baby powder could be tainted with asbestos. Yeah, that would be weird on many levels. So I appreciate you bearing with me here, because the strange thing is, is that baby, had that indeed been the message, the baby might have been right. From the 1970s right up into the early 2000s, Johnson & Johnson, their line of talc-based consumer products, including their baby powder and their adult-aimed shower-to-shower powder, they were, in certain instances, testing positive for asbestos. Johnson & Johnson, they knew all about those tests, but say it wasn't really asbestos. Now, decades down the line, tens of thousands of people in the U.S. and elsewhere say they, or a deceased loved one, has cancer, and alleged the cancer is linked to their use of these J&J talc-based products. There are nearly 40,000 lawsuits representing billions of dollars in potential liability for the company. And this is where the honky-tonk comes in. Johnson & Johnson has turned to a controversial bankruptcy procedure known as the Texas Two-Step. In this move, a parent company like J&J spawns a little mini-me subsidiary. The subsidiary, in J&J's case, the subsidiary is called LTL Management. It then files for bankruptcy, taking all the legal liability with it. Critics say the whole point is to limit payouts and defang plaintiffs. J&J says it's about fairness. Later, you'll hear all about the text's two-step and why it's so controversial. But for now, just know there's a hotly anticipated ruling which could make or break the two-step for Johnson & Johnson, and maybe even for all the corporations who might want to use it in the future. But before we get to the legal stuff, let's talk about talc. Much of what we know about Johnson & Johnson and its talc comes from some incredible reporting done by Reuters journalist Lisa Girion, starting back around 2018. Her investigation was a total bombshell.
3: Johnson & Johnson uh, stock posting its biggest one-day loss since 2002 after a report, a Reuters report, that as far back as 1957, the company knew of cancer-causing asbestos in their popular baby powder. The Dow component was down 10% during Friday's session, erasing $40 billion in market. I
1: invited value. Lisa Girion to join us to talk about what she found. I reached out to several of her colleagues, too, but they were unavailable. So instead, I'll do my best to tell you what what it is, in a nutshell, they reported. Let's start with talc. What the hell is this powder? Reputedly able to make anyone of any age just as soft and smooth as a baby.
3: Steal a moment
0: to baby yourself with soothing Johnson's baby powder.
1: Talc is a mineral It's mined, then milled down to a powder. Johnson & Johnson starts selling its scented, talc-based baby powder way back in the late 1800s, and parents just feel it's the perfect thing to be putting on their baby's diaper-chafed bottoms. Eventually it becomes popular among adults who use it to stay dry. It's particularly marketed to women. But it turns out, there's this complicated thing about talc it sometimes occurs naturally in the ground alongside asbestos. By the 1970s, the public was starting to understand that asbestos can be dangerous. The US government starts clamping down on its use. In 1971, a researcher, Arthur Langer, alerts J&J that he and his team found a relatively small amount of asbestos in a sample of the company's baby powder. J&J denies the results. and Langer, he's put on a list of people the company deems antagonistic personalities. Over the next several years, there's more of the same. Researchers saying they found small amounts of asbestos in the company's talc, followed by a scientific rebuttal from J&J, which the company says disproves the findings. Scientific rebuttals take several forms. At times, they dispute the tests or claims what they're finding isn't asbestos at all. j also has favourable test results it can point to, some done in-house, some by the FDA, some done by independent researchers that find no asbestos at all in their talc samples. J&J and the FDA also debate back and forth about acceptable levels of asbestos in talc. The company proposes a threshold 10 times higher than the FDA's proposal. Around 1976, the FDA basically gives up. Since that time, right till the present, J&J and other players in the cosmetics industry have been left to police themselves. They follow voluntary guidelines set by the Cosmetic Toiletry and Fragrance Association, or CTFA an industry group to which J&J belongs. Johnson & Johnson says its own testing is even more stringent than the limits set by the industry guideline. But while arguing with the FDA in 1976, Johnson & Johnson and the Cosmetic Toiletry and Fragrance Association send over a collection of documents illustrating their commitment to safety. These include a letter from J&J which says that it had been testing its talc and that between December 1972... In October 1973, no asbestos was found in any sample. What they did not mention was that tests done in 1974 and 1975 did find asbestos. J&J now says that the 1974 test wasn't really asbestos. It was a benign variant of the same mineral. And they say the 1975 test was on talc that was actually intended for industrial use, not for baby bottoms. But j js reasoning nevertheless failed to impress New Jersey Judge Anna Viscomi, who wrote in a 2018 decision, providing the FDA with favorable results, showing no asbestos, and withholding or failing to provide unfavorable results, which show asbestos, is a form of misrepresentation by omission. Judge Viscomi's ruling was the first ever in which J&J lost a case that claimed that asbestos in its products caused cancer. And that was the beginning of a new era. Today, J&J faces more than 38,000 lawsuits which allege links between its products and cancer. They stopped selling their talc, even though they continue to claim it is and has always been safe. Still, they've proposed an $8.9 billion sum to settle with all the claimants. Manon Lavigne could be one of them. Lavigne was diagnosed with ovarian cancer in 2021. She's also been using J&J talc her whole life. I'll speak with her after the break. I'm Mark Apollonio, and you're listening to Darts and Letters. We're a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network, a network of Canadian podcasts focused on making the world more socially, environmentally, and economically just. Check out what they do. Go to harbingermedianetwork.com.
4: My name is Manon. I'm 57 years old, almost 58. I'm single. I work full time, um, live in Montreal, born and raised here. I'm an animal lover, um, health freak, stuff like that. <laughs>
1: I'll just dive right into the nitty gritty of it, which would be your cancer diagnosis. Tell me about how it came about.
4: Well, it was a total surprise uh, for me. I had back pain and I went to the hospital. They did a, a scan on me, and uh, they saw that I had kidney stones, but at the same time, they also saw that I had a big tumor that I didn't know anything about. And from there on, uh, after that, they did an MRI, and then they didn't know if it was cancer or not, so they referred me to the Glenn Hospital, to the oncology. And they didn't know until I had my surgery that it was cancer. And, uh, yeah, so that's how I found out, because I had no symptoms. I had no idea.
1: And what kind of cancer is it? What can you tell me about it?
4: It's an ovarian cancer. It's clear cell carcinoma. It's a very rare and aggressive cancer. And it was stage 1A. I was very lucky that it was caught early, because if it hadn't, I'm not sure if I would be here today.
1: So what was your first reaction when you learned about this?
4: Shock, disbelief, because I always took very good care of my health. I don't smoke, I don't drink. Where did this come from? I was actually, I'm still processing it. It's still, I still can't believe this happened to me. You know, Um, of course, it could happen to anybody. I'm not, you know, but um, a total disbelief, a total shock. That's the only word I can say.
1: And tell me about the use over the course of your life of the Johnson Johnson's talk product.
4: Uh, I used to uh, Johnson's baby powder. I I remember my mother putting it on me after a bath when I was very little. And after that, when my teen up until my teen years on Batilla was around 50. I used it all the time. <laughs> you know, when you're, when it's a hot day or, you know, in your shoes or, you know, under your arms and the pelvic area, like I use it all the time. I, cause I like the smell. I like the smell of baby powder, you know? So I use it all the time, all the time, like every day almost. <laughs> so in a, in a
1: way it was a product that you, you like the smell of it. It had a practical use, but I'm also getting maybe a sense of almost like a nostalgia or a sentimental attachment to it because of your youth, maybe?
4: Yes, yeah. And, and you know, what's safer than a baby product? Right, Johnson, Johnson. So I never y- you don't think a baby powder would would do such damage.
1: How did you come to this understanding that there was this connection between talc and potential connection between talc and cancer?
4: The only way that I knew about the connection is that I saw this ad on Facebook talking about the the uh the class action suit that's going on with Johnson and Johnson. And then, you know, I read more about it and then like, Oh yeah, my God, I used it every day. Oh my God. Could this be it? That's incredible. I, That's the, how I made the, the association because before that I, I never thought it's the last thing that you would think of the baby powder would do this to you.
1: And then what happened? What'd you do then?
4: Well, I I clicked on the link. I sent my files to them because you have to prove that you had cancer. And I sent my files and I was approved to join the litigation.
1: Johnson Johnson has spent a lot of time and effort and money trying to cut that connection between the idea of their product and cancer. And depending on what you read or whatever, there may be more or less authority given to their their perspective. You know, some people are like, oh, that's totally just a corporation trying to cover its own behind. And then there are other people who have, you know, other interpretations or studies that people say will point to these other studies that seem to be more legitimate that say, well, maybe the, the connection isn't as clear or, or whatever. How do you feel about all of that when you're reading that stuff? What's what's going through your mind?
4: It brings uh, emotions of bitterness, like Johnson and Johnson, they knew about this. They knew about this a long time ago. They never mentioned it. But back then, there was no social media like there is now. So, uh, you know, even if they did mention it, maybe we wouldn't all know about it. But I'm very angry at them for, for not uh, being more honest with what was in their product. Now I can't trust anything I put on my body. Literally. <laughs> I read everything.
1: And how convinced are you that there is a connection for you in your case?
4: The way I used it chronically for whole my life, I'm pretty... 80% sure that that's the cause. Oh yeah. Asbestos does a lot of damage to your body. Um, actually my father died of, um, asbestos. He has asbestos in the lining of, the in throughout all his body. Cause he used to work with it. So that, that killed him. So, um, yeah, I'm pretty sure it has a big cause of, of, of this cancer. Definitely.
1: Your father died of asbestos. Yes. Wow. If you don't mind, do you mind just telling me about him and what happened with him?
4: Well, he would work in mines when he was young, so he would breathe in. Even back then, nobody knew about it. Well, I'm not sure if they knew that how bad it was, but he grew up... He didn't work there his whole life, but a big part of his uh, life, uh, his young life, worked in mines where there was asbestos. And later on in his life, uh, when he was around 60... Um, it took a long time for them to find out what it was, but, um, later on in his life, they, they discovered that he had asbestos covered in his whole gut and that's what uh, killed him.
1: So tell me about your, uh, your legal process. How, how has it gone? What's it been like?
4: I know that uh, Johnson and Johnson offered to pay 8.9 billion to the people that are just waiting for the courts to agree with it. I'm, yeah, we're just waiting. Everybody's just waiting. I think they'll, they'll have an answer in August. The courts have to approve it first. But I don't know any other, uh, because I do look online uh, all the time and it's always the same answer. Uh, they're, they're, they're just waiting.
1: So there's been these sort of fights that, you know, Johnson Johnson has been fighting to hide the history of its product. And it's kind of coming out, and and then I think maybe what happens sometimes is that these companies maybe they they succeed because they just put doubt into people's minds that maybe it's not true or whatever. So there's this sort of like fight in society between certain kinds of ideas. What do you think happens when, when this kind of thing happens?
4: You know, with the, with the internet, uh, with. with uh now it's easier and easier to find out the truth about everything by doing the proper research and then talking to the proper people. I don't think people are going to be fooled uh, for that much longer. People will believe it the first time, but you know, after all these all these people come forward with their cancer diagnosis and everything, I think they're going to lose their credibility and the big pharma, uh, you know, corporation and everything. They're not very trustworthy, in my opinion. And everything is about for the money. So Johnson & Johnson was trying to hide everything to keep the sales going. They put down in people, but that's not going to last very long. People are getting more and more aware, and especially with interviews like this. And me personally, I tell everybody, anybody my age, I tell them, did you use baby powder? You know, you better get checked. And, you know, I told, I have three sisters. I told all of them to get checked, you know. So how is your
1: how is your health now? What What is the medical professionals telling you now?
4: Right now, I'm cancer free, you know, because uh, it it was contained, and I was very, very lucky. And I had the chemotherapy as a preventative because it's such an aggressive cancer. They wanted to make sure that there was no cells remaining and everything. I had to stop at three rounds of chemotherapy. They wanted to do more because uh, I got very sensitive to it. I got very sick. I was in a lot of pain, so I told them to stop. I couldn't take it anymore. But I have regular ultrasounds and blood tests. Now it's every six months. But they're gonna, they told me they would follow me for the rest of my life, basically. I have to say though, when the doctor told me it was cancer, you know, I said, How how long do I have to live? He said, five years. That's pretty shocking. He said it's a very smart type of cancer that it usually comes back and it's chemo resistant. So if ever it did come back at a later stage, hypothetically, there's nothing to do. You die. You can maybe, you know, slow it down a bit, but there's definitely no cure. So I have to be really now proactive with my health for making sure that it doesn't happen again, you know. I'm still in disbelief with that. Pretty shocked. I'm still wrapping my head around all this, even two years later.
1: What's your hope for the lawsuit? Do you know how much you hope to get, or is there a number that you hope for? Or and and what would you like to to do with it?
4: I have no clue. I actually I don't want to hope for too much because I don't want to like you know hope. I'm hoping for the best for everyone. That everybody is compensated the way they deserve to be for blindly using their products that causes cancer. (laughs) I hope that it's going to open everybody's eyes about not trusting the pharmaceutical companies and what they put in their bodies and what they ingest and everything. I hope it's just going to open everybody's eyes and not to trust everything. What would I do with the money? That's a good question. I've thought about this often and um, I have no idea. I have no idea. I really, I don't know. All I know is I hope people it compensated the way it deserved.
1: That was Manon Lavine. David Eagleman is a clinical professor of family medicine at Brown University in Rhode Island. He served as a paid plaintiff's expert witness in multiple trials against Johnson & Johnson. And in February 2020, he and several co-authors published a paper in the Journal of Occupational and Environmental Medicine about cosmetic talc, asbestos, and ovarian cancer. I spoke to David Eagleman, and I asked him about the study.
0: All these patients were litigation cases, and they'd all had ovarian cancer of one form or another, mostly serous ovarian. And we got tissue from material that had been taken at surgery we found talc and asbestos in most of them. We didn't find asbestos in two of the 10, I think, but we did find talc in all of them. This is in the tumor tissue, either in the ovary or adjacent tissue that was removed. The women had all used J&J talc for various periods of time usually more than 20 or 25 years. And they had then been diagnosed with ovarian cancer.
1: Is there any way for you to conclude in that study that that asbestos came from Johnson & Johnson talc?
0: Well, only by the history. That was the only talc they had used. And the types of asbestos found were the types of asbestos that have been found in Johnson & Johnson talc from the 1950s through last year.
1: And you're saying that they found it in talc off the shelves this year, but Johnson Johnson hasn't been selling talc for the last several years. No, so that's, that's not correct.
0: They have not been manufacturing talc. I in see. fact, we purchased J&J talc products off the shelf within the last year or two. And if you go on Amazon, I think you can buy some. And there's a gray market as well. So in other words, it can be bought offshore, shipped to the US and sold in the US. I bought some 2016, 2017, that had been originally marketed, I think in Southeast Asia and bought it in Dallas at a hotel.
1: Tell me about your history in this whole affair with Johnson & Johnson's talc. how you got into it to begin with and what you feel you've uncovered over the years that you've been investigating it.
0: Well, I was involved initially as a consultant in the litigation. Because of that, I got access to all the previously confidential documents that Johnson & Johnson had showing that they'd known about the presence of talc, of asbestos and talc from the 50s onward and had positive tests through 2005 or so at least, that they'd been sued multiple times. So that was, and then I went about. Trying to get the documents de-designated and made public, which I was more or less successful at. And then I published what was in them. I published five or six papers on what we'd found, how they'd lied to the FDA and the medical community and patients. You know, then we did that study on what we found in the ovaries of women who'd been exposed who had heavy use of J and J
1: So I I don't know if there's a way to put it down to a figure or quantify it or anything, but I mean, do you have a sense of the impact of Johnson & Johnson's actions on public health, particularly the health of women in in America, for example, over the years?
0: Now, the amount of asbestos in the talc is very low. But if you expose enough people to a carcinogen, you're still going to get an excess number, you know, an excess cases caused by them. Historically, no physicians ever asked about it, including me, because, you know, we had read all those, those papers that said that after 76, there was no more asbestos in town. Until you get into the documents and the study techniques, you don't really know that that was a lie. And they knew it was a lie because they knew the test method didn't work.
1: The test method, the problem with the test method, people say, is that it's It's just not not sensitive enough.
0: Correct. But they did a test of the test method in 76, and the FDA participated in that test method. And they concluded it didn't work. It was unreliable. That was the word they used, and not reproducible. And they, in fact, only one of seven of the places that tested the test method found asbestos. And nonetheless, they persevered <laughs> and they convinced the FDA to let them self-regulate and use this faulty test method.
1: What's your take then on, on the regulators and all this, the FDA?
0: Look, there's a quote from a Merck document from the Viox situation where they, they say the FDA are overworked, understaffed, and incompetent. That's what Merck said about them. In 2004, or something.
1: Mer- Merck saying that this works in their favor, I guess.
0: Uh, I guess so. But in, it in Merck's matter, favor. Was their comments. Okay. I mean, it didn't work in the public's favor. I can assure you of that. Okay. Yep. Now, for cosmetics, it's a little worse. Okay. Because cosmetics really d- doesn't have any pre market testing.
1: How would you qualify the FDA's handling specifically of? Johnson & Johnson, and and uh, regulating the talc?
0: Well, they never regulated the talc. And part of the reason is they were tight with Johnson & Johnson. At one point in time, Johnson & Johnson said, how about if we send you some stuff so if there's a FOIA, you know, freedom of information request, mm. you can send out the stuff we send you about the safety of talc as official FDA stuff. And they agreed to that. So the J&J fed the FDA bogus data, which the FDA then incorporated into their decision-making process for denial of the petitions. And just as a random course, if you ever asked a question of them, they would send the J&J stuff out. And they cut and pasted from J&J's submissions into the Denials and the JJ data was wrong. J and J knew it was wrong. For example, when they did the estimates of exposure, they said that you spent 43 minutes a week diapering a baby, okay, being exposed. They had data from NIOSH, which the FDA didn't have, but J and J did have showing it was seven times longer than that to diaper a baby. And of course, that's just the diapering process. Usually, you hang around with the baby for a while in the dust. So the exposure time is 15 minutes or 30 minutes per diapering, often. Never mind the fact that the dust goes on the floor, and you kick it up and you breathe it in again. None of that went into any of their assessment, although that was all known to J&J. But they didn't pass that information on to the FDA. So, Dr. Eagleman, in Canada,
1: I understand that expert witnesses are paid $100 a day. In the U.S., there's no cap. You're a paid expert witness. And of course, that's exactly the kind of thing that a company that would want to discredit your perspective, call you biased, would be able to point to, call you an ambulance chaser or hired gun or something like that. Doesn't the fact that you're a paid expert witness muddy the waters when it comes to your testimony?
0: Um, Well... That's up to the juries to decide, okay? Most of the time, you're correct. They do as much as they can to besmirch my credibility. But, you know, most of the juries have uh, taken my word for it in the cases I've testified in.
1: Tell me a bit more about those cases. What's your history and what's your track record?
0: Well, I wouldn't call it a track record. You know, I mean, I've testified in probably 20, 25 cases. You know, the largest one was the Ingham case, which was a $4.6 billion verdict reduced to 2.3 or something. You know, corporations are only interested in money. Understand? They don't have Mm -hmm. anything else. They don't have a public health interest. They are human beings under the law, but they don't have a heart. I have a public health obligation to testify and do this work. And I guess, for the most part, both sides' experts get paid. Defense experts get paid usually a little bit more. People who really make money are lawyers. The defense lawyers are making, you know, $1,500 an hour, $2,000 an hour.
1: Like, I understand it takes a lot of time and effort to prepare for these things. I, I don't know how that maps onto the payment. I read in in a, in a piece published in Science that over 35 years or so of doing this work, you've made more than $5 million. So what, what motivates you then?
0: Public health. And I have a particular aversion to people who abuse their power to make money at the expense of people's health. Capitalism is a great system, if you can internalize all the costs. And the main cost that's externalized to the community are health costs, making workers sick, making customers sick, and polluting the environment. And so that's why you see company after company paying billion-dollar settlements, pharmaceutical companies. right? Because it's just the cost of doing business. It's nothing to them. And nobody ever goes to jail. If I poisoned my neighbor a little bit a year, if, let's say I, I went to my neighbor and I put some powder with asbestos in the house every day. And I visited them every day. And one of them came down with cancer. Okay, and they traced it to the fact that I was given some as put some asbestos in the air, right? I bet you I'd be in jail for murder, manslaughter. So if you put a little bit of asbestos in the air, 200 million people for 100 years, and you kill some of them? Why isn't that manslaughter? You put one of these executives on trial for manslaughter, it'll stop. You don't even have to win. Rich white men do not want to go to jail.
1: What to your mind is the lesson to be learned from the whole Johnson & Johnson affair?
0: There are many lessons. The first lesson is that the regulatory scheme, it doesn't work needs to be fixed. I've made a proposal about how to fix that in a letter. And it's to set up a whole separate kind of parallel schema at the FDA of people who represent the public interest. So that when the companies meet with the FDA officials, the FDA, there's someone there representing the public's interest. And they're there to be the devil's advocate for all of this in all the discussions right now, the companies meet with the FDA officials, and there's no one there with a, an explicit role to represent the public interest. And there's something called groupthink, which is a phenomenon that's been published on since the early 60s. Everybody gets together, there's no devil's advocate, you have a problem in decision making. So the decision-making process needs to be changed. Now, I don't think that's gonna happen, but there's a solution. Second, there needs to be pre-market testing for cosmetics, just like for drugs and implants. And pre-market approval companies have to be able to prove that their products are safe.
1: That was Dr. David Eagleman. I reached out to Johnson Johnson to see if a representative would join me for an interview to respond to the allegations made about the company. They instead provided a statement which first addresses their products and then addresses the use of the Texas Two-Step. I'll read the Texas Two-Step part later when we get there. For now, here's what Johnson Johnson says about the safety of their products. We empathize with anyone suffering from cancer and understand that people are searching for answers. We believe science provides those answers, with evidence from clinical research and over 40 years of studies by independent medical experts around the world supporting our position that our cosmetic talc is safe, does not contain asbestos, and does not cause cancer. Plaintiff lawyers are promulgating their unfounded theories for their own financial interests and are doing a disservice to their clients by leading them to believe.
4: That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder.
1: The kinds of lawsuits David Eagleman has testified in as a paid expert witness against J&J and the lawsuit Manon Levine hopes to bring against the company. Well, wherever they were at, they're on hold now. They're on hold because of the Texas two-step. In October 2021, J&J splits in two, creating a new subsidiary, LTL management and that subsidiary it holds all the liability to the talc claims almost immediately then the subsidiary declares bankruptcy pausing all legal action against it potentially for good but then an appeals court in Philadelphia upends this two-step effort by ruling that neither LTL nor JNJ has any real need for bankruptcy protection because well basically because JNJ is a juggernaut worth 425 billion dollars Shortly after, j gives their bankruptcy strategy some major tweaks and tries all over again. And now, July 2023, there'll be another hearing, one that could settle things for good, both in terms of the j saga and for the two-step in general, whether it'll be a worthwhile tactic for companies to turn to in the future. So how did we get here? I wanted to do a bit of a deep dive into the Texas two-step, so I reached out to Jamie Smith. He's the pharmaceutical industry correspondent for the Financial Times.
3: So Texas is a state which strives to have a very business-friendly legal system. So back in 1989, there was a group of lawyers and business executives who were looking at the ways they could try and attract business to come and locate in the state. So they worked on a draft law, called the Statute of Divisional Mergers, And what this draft law enabled them to do, and it was subsequently passed by the state legislature and came into being, was that it enables companies to divide themselves into two parts in a quite efficient manner, much more efficient than in other states. And in this process, it enables companies to put all their legal liabilities into one subsidiary, hive them off into what you could call is a bad co, and yet it can retain a separate subsidiary with all the good parts of the company, which is producing revenues and profits and going about its daily business and completely separate them. Now that's the first part of the Texas two-step. That's step one, enables the companies to divide themselves into two and hive off their liabilities into a bad co. Then comes the second step of the Texas two-step. And that's when a company will take its subsidiary, holding all those legal liabilities with the mass torts, the personal injury claims, and it will file for bankruptcy. Now, it doesn't generally do that in Texas because the bankruptcy system is, is not one of the better systems for this type of case. They used to send them off to North Carolina where the bankruptcy system... Was such that it was hard to prove something called fraudulent transfers when you move assets between companies during a bankruptcy scheme. So they chose this North Carolina area to file the four Texas two steps which have taken place. In the case of J&J, there was an objection to this. And actually they moved the case off to New Jersey. This was really the play sheet for these companies, you know? They used the Texas statute, divide themselves in two hive off all their legal liabilities. Then they seek a good legal forum with a, with a good bankruptcy law that suits corporates, in this case, North Carolina, and they make the filing for bankruptcy there for their subsidiary, while the parent remains unencumbered by the constraints of bankruptcy.
1: On first approach, what is the benefit to these companies to be trying to employ the Texas Two-Step?
3: I think one of the key benefits for companies facing these mass torts which are you know tens of thousands of personal injury lawsuits is that if they go down the bankruptcy route using this Texas two-step system they can potentially get a settlement which will cover all their current claims but also all the future claims that people might make against them so if you think about Johnson and Johnson They've been selling their baby powder, their talcum powder product since 1894. So there's, you know, over 120 years of potential cases out there. So even if they settled the 80,000 odd cases, or maybe it could be more than that up at this stage, you know, even if they settled those current cases, over the following decades they could get tens of thousands of others in the bankruptcy courts, what a settlement would do is it would actually say, we'll set up this pot of money and we will pay the current claims and any future claims. And in a sense, for Johnson & Johnson, that would settle this matter for good. So that's one of the key things why companies go down this route. Now, companies also say that the mass tort system in the US is completely broken. So they particularly dislike jury trials where they claim that juries can be swayed by emotion and they can provide lottery-like verdicts. Um, They point to, for example, one particular case in the Johnson & Johnson litigation, a jury awarded $4.7 billion to 22 women in a single case. So that, uh, that award was subsequently brought down or cut in half. So it was just over $2 billion. But companies hate these jury trials. They're unpredictable. They can lead to huge verdicts. So that's another reason that they want to take this litigation out of the civil courts and move it into the bankruptcy courts, which is a system that they think can better suit their interests. They also claim that the bankruptcy courts are more efficient and fairer for claimants. Because they say in these lottery-like settlements in front of juries, you know, some people win and some people lose. Whereas if you get a settlement in the bankruptcy court, it's a much fairer and efficient system. But this is really contested strongly by the plaintiff's bar and all the lawyers working on behalf of claimants that make these personal injury cases. They say this system denies them their right to a trial in front of a jury.
1: And presumably they, they get to evade maybe the reputational damage that would come with thousands or hundreds, I don't know the, the number of individual court proceedings against them.
3: That's right. Yeah. If you're facing tens of thousands of these cases, it does create a huge reputational risk for companies such as Johnson & Johnson, which have you know quite a trusted brand in the U.S., They don't want to see each individual case going to trial, being covered in the newspapers, huge verdicts being awarded over months and months and years and years and subsequently decades. So in a sense, this bankruptcy strategy enables them to benefit from the bankruptcy system by reducing the financial burden on them, the reputational risk on them, while they're able to go ahead without the constraints of bankruptcy on their parent company.
1: In sort of exploring the way that the more cynical or critical take on the use of the Texas Two-Step came about, there's the matter of this one former employee of Saint-Gobain, Emile Gross. What happened there? He testified. What did he say and what does it tell us about what we think are the intentions of the companies in employing the the Texas Two-Step?
3: So why do companies do this? I mean, the companies claim that this is all about being fairer and more effective seeking a more efficient resolution for the plaintiffs. These are people who are suffering from cancers. Many of them are fatal. They're going to die and they're going to die reasonably soon. So the companies say, well, we want to do this in a, in a quick, efficient manner. But there has been some evidence unearthed from a whistleblower who was a former executive at St. Goban, which is one of the companies. Which undertook a Texas two step. And he made a court deposition which claims that actually the companies were in this for themselves. They knew exactly what they were doing, that they were filing for bankruptcy on behalf of a subsidiary to frustrate the process, to defend their own financial interests, rather than seeking a resolution on behalf of claimants, as many of these companies have claimed. Now, I think when you look at the arguments in this, in these four cases, the companies all claim that they're seeking this equitable and fair resolution on behalf of plaintiffs. The first bankruptcy was filed in 2017 by a subsidiary of Coke Industries. In 2023, six years later, there has been no payments made to any of the claimants. So many of them have died. Subsequently without getting paid. During that six-year period, you know, the subsidiary of Coke Industries, which was placed into bankruptcy, was able to pay dividends worth $5 billion to Coke Industries.
1: Who are the other companies? You've been reporting about some some more recent developments and all this. Who who are the other companies who've been trying to employ the Texas two-step?
3: Coke Industries was the first with its subsidiary, Georgia Pacific, in 2017. Then there were two other companies, Saint-Gobain, a European buildings material company, and Train Technologies, which is a manufacturing company. All of them are dealing with asbestos claims you know, and litigants who allege that this has caused their cancers. And they've all gone down this route of splitting their companies using the two, Texas two-step mechanism. And they've all employed Jones Day, the law firm from Cleveland, which devised this strategy. However, there are other companies which have used very similar bankruptcy strategies to shield themselves, their parents, from uh, lots of litigation. And one example of that is the conglomerate 3M, which had a subsidiary called Aero Technologies, which produced a type of earplugs which it sold to the US military. Now, there are over 260,000 claims, mostly by veterans, alleging that these earplugs didn't work and caused them hearing damage. So, facing this deluge of claims, 3M decided it would make Aero Technologies file for bankruptcy in this way, split it off from 3M's parent. So, 3M would remain outside of the bankruptcy system, and it would seek a resolution with the 260 claimants, you know, within the bankruptcy system. In doing that, it set up a trust fund of about $1 billion, which it said should settle all these claims. And I must say, in this case, the company denies that its earplugs are faulty. So 3M pursued this bankruptcy strategy. And then last week, we had quite an interesting verdict by the bankruptcy court in Indiana, which dismissed the bankruptcy. It said that this scheme that 3M was pursuing was not eligible for the protections in the bankruptcy system. And it said it it wasn't eligible because, in a sense, Aero Technologies was not in financial distress because it was backstopped by its parent company, 3M. So this is an example of one company which tried a similar type bankruptcy system, but has been blocked by the courts up to this stage.
1: Does that echo the Johnson & Johnson ruling that happened back in January where a third court of appeal said uh, that its effort to apply the, the Texas two-step by hiving off what you call a bad co, in this case, it was called LTL. So Johnson Johnson creates a smaller company, then has that company file for bankruptcy while holding all of the liability for all of its supposed exposure to plaintiffs for its talc and, 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 and the cancer that they claim, claim was caused by. Using the talc, so this judge sort of dismissed Johnson Johnson's efforts there. What what happened?
3: So yeah, there's similarities between the 3M case and the Johnson and Johnson case. So in the case of Johnson and Johnson, it announced its Texas two-step bankruptcy in October 2021. So it was facing at the time 38,000 lawsuits which claimed that its talcum powder. Caused people's cancers. So, facing all these judgments, it decided, you know, we're going to try this bankruptcy maneuver in a way to settle it. Johnson Johnson set up LTL, split it off using the Texas statute. It established a $2 billion trust, which it said would handle the settlements on behalf of claimants. And then it put LTL into bankruptcy. First, it tried it in North Carolina, then the bankruptcy was moved up to New Jersey. So when Johnson & Johnson made the bankruptcy filing, the lawyers on behalf of these claimants were outraged. You know, they said, this is a sham bankruptcy. It's a filing made in bad faith. And most importantly, it denies their clients the right to a jury trial. So they appealed that within the bankruptcy court. And the bankruptcy court judge, Michael Kaplan, disagreed with them. He said that actually bankruptcy, is a proper venue for reaching an efficient and fair settlement in this case. So the case continued in the bankruptcy court, but the talc claimants filed an appeal to the US Court of Appeals. And they argued that, you know, j j had set up a sham bankruptcy in this case, and that it should not be allowed to proceed. In January, we got this Huge decision by the US Court of Appeals. It ruled against Johnson & Johnson. It said that LTL, the subsidiary which Johnson Johnson had placed into bankruptcy, was actually not in financial distress and shouldn't benefit from bankruptcy because Johnson & Johnson, a $400 billion corporation, was backstopping it. It had agreed it would fund it up to the level of at least $60 billion for any potential settlement. The panel of three judges on that appeals court said, you should not be benefiting from the bankruptcy system. This is a sham bankruptcy. It was filed in bad faith because, you know, you're not actually in financial distress. When the bankruptcy court was forced to dismiss the bankruptcy after the court of appeals ruled against it, immediately, one hour after that bankruptcy was dismissed, Johnson & Johnson lobbed in another Bankruptcy filing on behalf of LTL, so it's hoping that this second Texas two-step that it's filed in April will enable it to actually go forward and get a settlement. Now there, there's it's a huge contention here because J and J says it has sixty thousand TEL claimants signed up to this deal, but a minority of telc claimants, and we don't know exactly how many, say that's not true. Some of these are bogus claims and they feel that LTL doesn't have the required 75%. So the minority of health claimants who don't agree with this $9 billion settlement are fighting it in the bankruptcy court. And there's going to be a hearing in July into whether this bankruptcy, the second bankruptcy should be dismissed. You would think that if it is dismissed, this would be the end of Johnson Johnson's Texas Two-Step. And it would send a very negative message for other Texas Two-Step cases, because we have seen that Talc claimants and most of the other cases are now taking similar appeals against them. So there's basically a huge legal fight over the future of these bankruptcy schemes. We're gonna find out probably in the next year about whether this scheme will be ruled out for good.
1: Jamie Smith, pharmaceutical correspondent for the Financial Times. I told you earlier I reached out to J&J and that they sent a statement. Here's what they said about their Texas two-step bankruptcy strategy. While the talc-related claims against the company have no merit, we recognize that resolving these cases in the tort system would take decades, with most claimants never receiving any compensation. Resolving this matter through the proposed reorganization plan in bankruptcy court is both more equitable and more efficient, and allows claimants to be compensated in a timely manner. It is also a legitimate and appropriate use of the bankruptcy process. Our plan has the support of the vast majority of claimants, and we look forward to letting all claimants vote. And that's it for this week's episode of Darts and Letters. We are a production of Cited Media, and we are produced by Jay Coburn, Ren Bangert, and me, Mark Apollonio. Our theme song and outro is composed by Mike Barber, graphic design by Dakota Coop. Our usual host and editor is Gordon Caddick. This episode received support from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. It's part of our new mini-series that looks at the politics of medicine and medical controversies. The scholarly leads are professors Maya Goldenberg at the University of Guelph and Maxwell J. Smith at the University of Western Ontario. The research assistant is Yoshiyuki Miyasaka at the University of Guelph. They all provided research support and guidance to this episode. We are also backed by our generous patrons. Join us, join them. Go to patreon.com slash darts and letters. Thanks for listening.